Hello, everyone. Welcome to another new episode of the Focus Point Podcast. I'm glad you've decided to give this a listen. Over the last couple episodes, I've been doing kind of like a little thought before we actually dive into the content of the episode. But um, this is a lot to cover in this episode, a lot of good stuff in this episode. So I'm going to skip that that stuff this week, and we're going to just dive right in to episode three of our series, Gyra. But real quick, if you want to find out more information, if you want to look up some other stuff, you can head over to our website, thepointoffocus.com, and you can find our blog posts and some videos and just some other information, as well as the podcast. And you can go and look up uh, those things over there on our website, thepointoffocus.com. As I said, this is episode three of a series we're calling Jira, and it's the name of God, Jehovah Jireh, which means God provides. And over the last couple of episodes, we looked at part of Abraham's story in Genesis 22. And looking at that part of Abraham's story, we see God provide for him in a big way. And God just doesn't provide the material thing that he needed, right? The, the lamb for the sacrifice instead of his son. We, we, um, we see God also provides strength that he needed to do what God asked him to do. In the last episode of this series, we talked about that and how doing what Abraham had to do had to take strength, packing up that donkey, packing up his son, and, and taking that journey and walking all that way, and just every step had to take more and more strength. God was going to provide for him, but Abraham didn't know that. Abraham had faith and trusted that God was going to keep his promise to him. Abraham even states in that in that journey that God's going to provide the lamb. He didn't know for sure what that meant. He didn't know what for sure was going to happen. So we see Abraham take that journey. And God does provide for him and God does come through for him. But God provided the strength for him to take those steps and to do what he had to do and to just do what God asked him to do. And it took a lot of strength. And so we talked about that a little bit. We talked about how sometimes it just takes strength for for us as well just to take that next step, that next step because we're trusting God that he's got something for us and he's got good plans for us. So, with that being said, for this next um for this episode, I want to take you back to the beginning. I want to show you how God loves us better than anyone ever could, okay? Because that's another thing that God provides, and God provides us with love. So all the way back at the beginning, and we're going to be paraphrasing Genesis 1 through 3 in this next few minutes of this episode. So when we look back, very beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, He created all we see and all we don't see. And that's a nice way that Genesis 1-1 reads from the message translation of the Bible. He added, God created the heavens and the earth, all we see and all we don't see. And that just adds like a scope for me. Because a lot of the times we think God created heavens and the earth, right? Yeah, we see that God created the earth. And we see all of the stuff that he created. But then when when you add all you don't see... We think about all the things that we can't see, right? And on the, just on the earth alone, 
But then when you get into the heavens, all you see and all you don't see. Just thinking about the, the, the vastness of space and the just how far it goes and just all that we've explored of it. And just there's just so much more all we see and all we don't see. Just, just think about that for a little bit. He spoke all of it into existence. All of it. And we see this in Genesis 1 where God just like, and God said, let there be this and let there be that. And let the, this bring forth this and all of these things that God said. But then he changed his approach. He goes from speaking things to forming things. God started creating man in his image as Genesis one twenty. Genesis one twenty seven says, and he formed man out of the dust of the ground, as Genesis 2, 7 says. And as you think about it, God changes into this creating and he starts to, to mold the dust of the ground into these human beings. And we see that in the early parts of Genesis 2, where God shows this creation process when he creates Adam and how he created us in the dust of the ground. God took his human creation, named Adam, and he placed him in the Garden of Eden. Adam was instructed to care for the garden and the animals. God also instructed Adam to not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or he would die. God saw Adam was alone and that it's not good for him to do life alone. So Adam, so sorry, so God put Adam to sleep and created Eve from using one of Adam's ribs. But then life in the garden took a turn when a deceiver came and talked with Adam and Eve. And we see this now as God has got this place and he's created these two people to care for this garden, to, to live in this garden. He's, he's taken his time here with this. And this place is absolutely great. But in comes this deceiver. In comes this person that's going to change that all up. Satan, in the form of a servant, asked Eve, and this is in Genesis 3, if God said she couldn't eat from the trees in the garden, Eve told God, Eve told him that, no, God said we can eat from the trees in the garden, just not from the tree, not from the one I'm standing in front of right now, not from the one that you're, you're hanging from, or we will die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't eat from that tree. Satan told her, "You won't. She won't die. God is keeping the true power of the tree a secret." Satan told her that God knows that when you eat the fruit of this tree, you will be just like God, knowing good and evil. Eve was convinced, and she ate from the tree. She also gave some to Adam, and he ate as well. As soon as they ate it, they suddenly felt shame because they were naked and they made coverings for themselves. And this is where the knowledge of good and evil comes into place. They didn't have a knowledge back then of anything. And we can miss that sometimes. We can miss, you know, hey, they didn't know anything was wrong with anything. But what we miss is that evil always has existed in the world because Satan was there. Evil has always been present. 
and God gave them a choice. And I'm often asked by the group of, of fifth graders that, that, that I work with at my church, like I'm often asked why this choice was there to begin with, why this was there, because God had to give them a choice. Do you want to choose, you know, life with me, the tree of life? Or do you want to choose knowledge of good and evil? Do you want to choose some other way? God always has given us choices. God gave them a choice right from the start. You know, and some people were like, and even, and so those kids ask me, it's like, well, why did God put that there if he knew they were going to make a mistake? He didn't know they were going to make a mistake. He had to give them a choice. Right? He had to give them this choice. Otherwise, we're just robots. You know, there's no other way but to choose God. And so we just choose God. That's not what God wants. God wants authenticity. God wants us to choose Him. And that's what He wanted for Adam and Eve. He wanted them to choose Him. Or their knowledge of good and evil. Choose themselves. And the next part of the story has a lot of good stuff. But there's too much to cover here. I've done um, other uh, blog posts about this particular scene. Um, you can go look those up. But there's just there's a lot of stuff here to try and cover. So, God came for a walk in the garden though. Adam and Eve heard him coming. And they hid from him. Because of what they had done. God calls them out. And they come out of their hiding. God, God, sorry. God calls to them. And they come out of their hiding. God asked them why. God asked them if they had eaten from the tree of the garden. And he told. Um, that, they to- that he told. Sorry. That he told them not to eat from. If I could untie my tongue for a second. And their response is. Adam blamed Eve. And Eve blamed Satan. And God handed out the consequences. You see, because when, when God first said, and this is just a brief little spot here, but when God first came to them and said, hey, you know, and Adam actually says in Genesis 3, I was afraid, I was ashamed. And, well, who, who told you that stuff? And that's where it came into play. They didn't have this, this knowledge yet of anything to be wrong. So when Adam came to God and said, I was ashamed, or I I was naked. And God's like, well, who told you to, to, to feel that way? It's a very, and that's what I mean, that's what I can't get into right now. So, like I said, I've done a blog post on that, and you can find it. Um, I think there's even a podcast episode for it. But still, go look that stuff up, and it's all good. Um, and so then God handed out their consequences and sometimes we think consequences to be always bad in this case they are, but sometimes consequences are good. Consequence is just an outcome of a choice. So they can be good and bad consequences. So God hands out the consequences of their actions, starting with the serpent, then Eve, then Adam. God made clothes for Adam and Eve from animal skins and he, then he kicks them out of the garden and he puts in angels and flaming swords to guard the path to the tree of life. To guard the path back into the garden. To guard the garden for good. And so we see this. And 
that's the that's the story I wanted to cover. And I know some of you might be listening to this kind of like, wait a minute, that does not sound like God showing love better than anyone. It sounds like he's just mad and disappointed and upset. And he's just handing out punishments. How is that showing love? Well, you answered your own question there. It's showing love when you care enough to to discipline. Like that that's showing love. But that's not the kind of love that I'm talking about. But there is love in this story. Let's check it out right here. Genesis 3.21 And then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. This verse right there shows the love of God. God gave them a punishment for what they did, but he, and he still cared for them. It wasn't that he was going to just punish them and just kick them out of the garden, rub them back into dust, or anything like that. God took, made clothing for them. He still showed them love by making clothes for them. God does the same. God did and continues to do the same for us. God, God loves us enough to do that. God cares enough for us to, to show us love, even though we mess up. And Adam and Eve messed up big time. This is, this is the fracture that broke the world. And the thing of it is, God still, the, the, the level of this, this mess up, the level of this goof, God still cared for them. Moses is another prime example. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many different people. Moses is a good one. Moses is a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. Then he ran and hid for a while. And God still brought him back as one of the big leaders of the movement of Israel out of Egypt and the first part of that journey. God still used them. God still used him, sorry. And also throughout the Old Testament, God tried many different things to help his people overcome the punishment for their sins. Because as the Bible says, the punishment for sin is death. So God put... Back then, death was something had to die, okay? In the case of Adam and Eve, he sacrificed animals and made them clothing to cover their sin. Makes a lot of sense. But in it, going forward, like the punishment for sin is still death. Something has to die for the payment of sins. And we see in the story of Noah that the punishment for sin was put on a bunch of people that died in the flood. Something has to die to overcome sin. So God put sacrifice system in place, and it was called the Day of Atonement, and you can read about that in Leviticus 16. And, and this Day of Atonement was this big big thing, this big ritual, and, and, and God you know, had these rules and these instructions, and only one, one person could go in there, and he had to do all these things right to make sure he was pure and clean to go stand before Almighty God, because if he didn't, he would drop dead. It was a big, big sacrificial thing, but God realized that this system wasn't going to be a long-term fix because the Day of Atonement was only one time a year. He realized it wasn't going to be a, a long-time fix. There needed to be a sacrifice that would pay for the sins of the world, past, present, and future, once and for all, period. And we see this sacrifice, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
God sent Jesus to be that once and for all sacrifice for us. God sent Jesus out of his love for us. Out of his love for us, God sent Jesus to live the life that needed to be lived, to be the one perfect sacrifice payment for sin. Sin, once and for all, would be gone. The payment for sin is death. And that death was going to be put on Jesus' shoulders once and for all. But also, too, Jesus shows love for us. Verse 17, like John 3.17 isn't always known. John 3.16, easier to say. It sounds, rolls off the tongue. I don't know. But John 3.17 also shows love. And it shows the love of God. It shows the love of Jesus. But that verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus didn't come down here. God didn't send Jesus down here to, to wave his finger and point it in our face and, bl- and get all on us and you're doing all the God, that's not what Je- Jesus came down for the one sole purpose. And this uncomplicates Jesus to the point that it, it just strips it down, in my opinion. And Jesus came down to live his life perfectly so he could be a sacrifice for us. He didn't come down to wave his hand and point his finger and shame all of us and guilt trip us all. He didn't come down to do that. That's not what Jesus came down to do. He came down to live his life, to show love, compassion, and kindness, and all of that stuff, and patience, and joy, and all of the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus came down to do that. That's what he came here to do. And that's what he did. He didn't come down here to get us all. He came down here to save us all. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, it's known as like the love. There's like a love paragraph in there. And when you look at that, and it reads, 1 Corinthians 13, um, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance, and love never fails. This verse describes Jesus so well. So well. It describes God too. God is patient and, and, and kind and love is, Jesus is patient and kind as well. As a matter of fact, there's a little bit of an exercise or some kind of, you know, call it an exercise to do with these verses and maybe you can do it with me right now or you can do it later or you can put this up somewhere. But when you think about it, okay, and in this um, exercise, the lead pastor of my church told us to, and you can use, um, told us that any place you see love in that passage, so love is patient and kind, or kind of like the reference to the word love, because in these verses, it's also, it is not, meaning, so you could just replace the word it too. So like love is patient and kind, love does not demand its own way, love is not irritable. So any place where love is the undertone, where love is referenced, even if it's the word it, 
Okay, put Jesus in there. You can also use God if you want, but for the sake of this illustration, I'm going to use Jesus. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 now reads, Jesus is patient and kind. And we see this throughout his time on earth. Jesus was always patient and kind with people. The disciples, he was patient with them because there were times where he had to reel them in, sit them back, make them like... Um, where he had to make them calm down and not do like certain things, you know, he had to just kind of reel them in sometimes. He was patient and he was kind with them. He showed them love. Jesus is not jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. This describes Jesus too. Jesus never tooted his own horn about his accomplishments. He didn't walk around and be like, yeah, I turned that water into wine. Yeah, I healed that man. A lot of the times he did something and it was like, shh. Because at one reason it wasn't ready for Jesus to, to be like that known. It wasn't that time of his ministry yet for him to start that. That's one of the reasons why it was, shh. but it was also, I don't need to be that person. Miracles are going to happen and people are going to pray. And that's going to happen on its own, pretty much. That's why any place Jesus went as his ministry went on, thousands of people followed him around because of that. Because of his miracles and because of his healings. He didn't need it to go word of mouth. Like he didn't need people to tell. He didn't need to brag about it himself. He doesn't do that. Jesus was never rude to people. You know, a lot of the time you can say he's angry. He got angry one time and that was um, justifiable. Anger is good in the right place. And Jesus was mad that pretty much his temple was being um, messed around with and it wasn't appropriate the way they were treating the temple and what they were doing in the temple. And he got mad. Jesus does not demand his own way. Boy, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't demand his own way. Jesus going to the cross, he could have given up at any time. He could have told, he called it quits and said, we weren't worth it. These people are not worth it. They keep messing up there. It's a, it's a joke, God. A joke, Father. Jesus even asked God in Luke twenty two forty two, if there's some other way, let's do that. But your will be done. Your will be done, Father. Jesus wanted a way out, but he didn't demand his own way. He didn't say, you know what? I'm hanging it up. I'm hanging it up, Father. I can't do this anymore. We're going to have to find some other way. He didn't. He said, take this cup from me, but your will be done. Jesus is not irritable. I mentioned that kind of already when he, about turning over the tables. And if anybody could have been irritable, it could have been Jesus because he was probably tired all the time because every place he went, everywhere he turned, there were people. Like rest was not something that Jesus did. He had to go out into like the water to rest. A lot of the times in the Bible, Mark 6 is one of those spots where Jesus is like, hey, let's go out into the water so we can rest. He had to like get away from the crowd. Jesus is not irritable, and Jesus keeps no records of being wrong. Jesus doesn't keep a list. We as humans keep a list. We keep track of all the wrong things that have been done to us, how this person treated us, what this person said, and so on and so on and so on and so on. 
But what about all the times that we've wronged Jesus? Think about that for a second. What about all the times that we've taken a step in the wrong direction and hurt Jesus? But there's no condemnation in Jesus. As John 3.17 says, Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Paul echoes that in Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation in Jesus. Jesus does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Jesus isn't happy when those he loves goes through rough times. It breaks his heart when we hurt, but Jesus is also closer than ever when we hurt. As Roman, as, sorry, as Psalms 34.18 says. Jesus loves us too much to be distant when we are hurting. But think about this. If, we, if, if Jesus is distant or if Jesus feels distant or if he feels like he's not there, then maybe that's because we've put him at a distance. Jesus wants to be right there. Psalm 34.18 says God is close to the brokenhearted. He's, he's there. Jesus never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Jesus doesn't give up on us. He loves us too much. Jesus never fails. People fail us. People will break our hearts. People will turn on us. People will leave us. But not Jesus. Jesus will never fail us. Jesus didn't fail his people when he said he was going to rise from the dead. Jesus didn't fail them. God didn't fail Abraham when he said he was going to provide a son and that he was going to make Abraham a great nation. God provides a love better than anyone could. But it takes trust and faith to believe that God loves us this much. We're all a mess and sometimes we can get that in the way. And sometimes we can, we can focus on that too much. And how, how can God love this big pile of bones that is such a mess? How can God love me when I do what I do or when I say what I say or when I act the way that I act? The truth is we're all a mess. Jesus surrounded himself with messes and it's the messes that God does his best work. Look at Moses. Look at David. Look at Peter and Paul. Just those few. There's several other, but just those main ones throughout the story of God. He used these people to do big things. He didn't wait for anybody to be perfect because if he waited for us to be perfect and not a mistake and not, not to make mistakes, sorry, if he, if he waited for us to do that, he would be waiting a long time because he knows we're not perfect. But I want to close with this last phrase. This is it right here. I want you always to remember that if you're listening to this, I want you always to remember that you are loved by Almighty God. <laughs>